40 minutes, and I might get done 20 minutes early. Who knows? You never know. But buckle in and hang on. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. I was struggling on what to do and start a new series on Sunday nights. Wes is doing Acts, and Dad's doing Revelation right now. So I, I was reading, and I'm doing this Bible reading plan that I really enjoy that is putting me in a lot of different, lot of different things right now. And one of the things I came across and studied uh, last week was the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to start looking at right now is the Sermon on the Mount. We want to answer the question, what it looks like to follow Jesus. What it looks like to follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 and 5, 6, and 7 is the entire, is the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'll give you guys a little bit of hope. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'll take you about... If you're an average reader, about 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes. I want you to know it's going to take us several weeks to get through it. So don't think we're going to do it in about 10, 15, or 20 minutes. There are currently 107 verses of dialogue and three chapters that Jesus goes through. But I want to start with the first 12 verses. And I feel like it's a fairly common um, point in Scripture that a lot of us might know. We've referenced it and call it, if it's in your Bible, it's probably called the Beatitudes. In the first 12 verses, we see that Jesus Christ is somewhat early in his ministry, takes his disciples to a mountain and teaches them about what it means to be part of Jesus's kingdom. Now, here's the thing about God's kingdom or Jesus's kingdom. It is completely countercultural to what we think of in our own minds. Anything you think that would be the way to go, it's not at all what Jesus teaches. Anything that we are, as our human, human beings, think of as strength or success, Jesus does not. And Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12 starts off with the Beatitudes. The first 12 verses is all we're going to hit tonight. And I have a question for you. How many of us, raise your hand, be honest, be really honest with me. How many of us want to be happy? Raise your hand. If you're not raising, I'm questioning a lot about you. All of us want to be happy, right? All of us have a desire to be happy. I think it's safe to say we all, what in the world was that? That was like the, the bullhorns out again. We want to be happy with our jobs, with our family, with our relationships, with where we live, what we do, how we spend our time. Happiness is something that I think we all strive for on a daily basis, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with striving to be happy. Now, the second question I have for you is this, and don't, if you don't answer this out loud, this will open up a can of worms. What will you do or what lengths will you go to to obtain happiness? The world spends a lot of money on anything from expensive vacations, surgeries, weight loss experts, clothing, cars, and any other luxury that they believe will bring them happiness. The Bible, on the other hand, in these first 12 verses, shows us a much different way to be happy. Like I said, the Sermon on the Mount takes place early in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in only in chapter 5, and Matthew's one of the longer Gospels. And Matthew's Gospel is written kind of with the intent of being for a Jewish audience. And so we see a lot of these different things and idioms that Jews would, Jews would know. And we can assume that Jesus hasn't been teaching long. But he's already become famous, as we'll see. The sermon takes place in chapter 5, 6, and 7. But if you're here, look at the last, ver- last 
first two verses of chapter 4. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him a great multitude of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. We see that Jesus Christ has already become somewhat famous in his area. And here we see Jesus is going to teach for three chapters, 107 verses of dialogue, and confront many things that the Israelites would have been struggling with. The most important thing Jesus confronts here is he confronts the law with grace. He shows what it means to follow Jesus out of love, not out of a law-abiding responsibility. But what does that mean to follow Jesus and do the things Jesus wants us to do out of love and not as what you could say maybe a legal responsibility? Well, let me put it this way. The speed limit on Highway 34 right out here is what? Uh, if I hear someone say 65, I'm going to turn you in. It's 55 miles an hour. And if you, you know that, if it's being heavily patrolled recently, it's 55 miles an hour. Now, if you're driving down 34 and a state patrolman is behind you and not pulling you over, just behind you, you are going to set your cruise right at 55. You're not going to play with it. You're not going to mess with them. State patrolmen are kind of bad-tempered. I know, Todd, you had the same training as some of those guys, but they're kind of bad-tempered. I'm sorry. We don't have any state patrolmen in here, and Dennis and Deanna are probably watching online, so I'm sorry about your son-in-law. But you would set that cruise right at 55. You wouldn't go above it much. You'd say right at 55 because you are following the letter to the law because of the consequences that will happen if you don't. Now, say you're driving on 34, but this time you have, a, you have a baby strapped into a car seat in the back seat. You're more cautious now of how fast you're driving, not because of the legal repercussions, but because of the love you have for that child in the back seat. And you see, and that's what it is. We are not motivated to follow Jesus because of the law. We are motivated by the love that he has shown towards us. The Bible says that I will know, you'll know my disciples by what they do. We are known by our works. We are not saved by our works. We are known by our works. It is easy to tell who is a disciple of Christ because they look at talk and behave a whole lot different than other people. Laura and me were talking this week about, about a group of people we know, and Laura is the Christian in the group, and everyone knows it. Everyone in that group knows it. And it's pretty evident that everyone knows it, and they say stuff about that all the time. There's another person in the group that says they're a Christian as well, but doesn't act like a Christian. But what they say Laura, you need to pray for us. We're on our way to hell. I, I've heard them say that before. But they never look at this other person, hey, you need to pray for us. We're on our way to hell. Because that person acts just like the world does. We are called to be different. So Jesus teaches here in these chapters what, is, what it means to follow him out of love, not out of responsibility. And he uses the first 12 verses. He uses eight actions or attitudes or what's called the Beatitudes that we need to have. It is important to understand that these are not like an a la carte menu. FYI, this is not 
pick and choose. This is like shopping at Sam's Club. You went in for a pack of tuna, you're getting eight. I mean, that's what it is. So get it out of your mind that I can pick and choose which ones of these I want. No, you have to take them all. This is all part of the Christian life. You cannot pick and choose. You have to show or act out all of them. So number one, if you're taking notes, and we're just going to walk through this verse by verse. Number one, we look at the place. We look at the place. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, I have a picture. Uh, if you guys want to throw that picture up real quick. Not, no, not that one. Where's that one? That one. That's about the setting of where this takes place. Probably a little higher. But this is the mountain range or the it's more hills for us. We don't really consider that a mountain. But this is where Jesus Christ would have been teaching. And he goes up, and this is only recorded in Matthew, and then Luke glosses over it. And, and he's seeing the multitudes. He went up into the mountain, and when he was set, started off with this. Jesus assumes the position of a rabbi here. He, he, he expresses his authority as a teacher, and he assumes a position that a rabbi normally would have assumed, and he sat while everyone else taught. Let's try that tonight. I'm going to sit. You all stand for the rest of the sermon. You know why they did that? Here's a practical reason. So they don't fall asleep. Kind of fun, right? We had to do that in school. We had teachers. 7 a.m. classes were the worst. I had a 7 a.m. contemporary theology class with a teacher who, I love him to death, but was boring even at like 7 p.m. So 7 a.m. we go in and we're talking about ecumenicalism and compromising all that kind of stuff. And it's Frankly, he's going through some of the terms, and it's kind of rough. And he'd say, if you're going to fall asleep, go stand in the back. Well, I want you to know I spent most of that semester standing in the back. I mean, sitting back there trying to take notes. I mean, it was rough. But that's what Jesus does here. He assumes the position of a rabbi. He, he shows his authority, and he sits to teach them. He takes a break from the crowds. We see, he says, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, uh, reading through, there's a lot of opinions on whether or not this is strictly just the 12 or if this is a group of his disciples. And I don't think it's, I think it's difficult to find an accurate conclusion. So I just say these disciples is probably just a group of his followers. So he takes a break from the crowds and goes and he references this sermon strictly to his disciples. This sermon is meant for Christians. This, this sermon is not meant for the unsaved. You're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. We are glad you're here. There are some great principles to glean from this, but the promises in this scripture are meant for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this sermon is completely, like I said, countercultural to the regular standards of the current time. One uh, one commentary called it the constitution of the kingdom of God. It's the law set forth on how we as Christians are to behave and act and why we're supposed to act that way. It is interesting to see that the Beatitudes, we'll see here in a bit, progressively get harder to achieve. We'll start with the first is being the poor in spirit. I feel like that's fairly simple. We'll get into it. But the last one is blessed are the persecuted. You're like, I'll stay away from that one. I'll be poor in spirit, but don't persecute me yet. And we see that 
it goes progressively worse from being poor in spirit where you recognize that you have nothing of value to God and yet he still loves you to you being happy about being persecuted. So we see the place. Number two, let's look at the principle. This is the principle. Two words you need to recognize right away. Blessed or blessed. This word means to be happy, to be envied, to be enlarged, or to be privileged. We use the word happy. It's going to be the easiest word for us. The next word that you'll see, and this is something I found interesting, is the word for. <coughs> In every, every beatitude from 3 to verse 10, there's that word for. That can be translated as because. So circle that, do whatever you need to do. Remember that, blessed and for, happy and because. Jesus is giving us the key to happiness here, but he follows each of these eight characteristics or each of these principles with a promise of something or the reason why we can be happy. You see, the world is constantly going to showcase stuff to try to make you happy. It'll throw stuff up on social media. It'll put stuff on TV. It'll flood your mind with things it'll think that'll make you happy. Here's, here's a certain brand of, of, of prescription meds. Here's, here's a vacation destination. Here's a thing to help you lose all the weight you wanted to lose. Here's a certain fad that you need to follow. Here's the celebrity gossip you need to follow. They will try to mitigate the stress of the world with temporary pleasures. But Jesus Christ here gives us the key to happiness. So let's look at this. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. <coughs> Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see Jesus is giving us the key to happiness. So look at verse 3. Blessed, happy, happy, privileged, you are to be envied, are the poor in spirit. Jesus starts with the saying with saying that happiness comes from recognizing that you are nothing without Jesus. <coughs> I'm sorry. This is something I I know I've talked with Weston Lar a little bit, mom and dad. The world the world has this idea of you are enough. They constantly say that. You are enough. And I understand where they're coming from. But if I'm honest, biblically, we are not enough. The Bible calls us poor in spirit. We are we're nothing without God. That word spore, literary, poor literally means begging due to poverty. <coughs> we are so destitute that we do not have anything worthy of Jesus' time, love, and yet, look what he promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells the disciples that those that believe they are nothing without him, 
will receive the kingdom of heaven. This is the essence of our salvation, ladies and gentlemen. This is that even though we are worthless, even though we are worth nothing, Jesus still promises us the best. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. (coughs) Our sin has made us so destitute, so disgusting to the holiness of God that he owes us absolutely nothing. And yet, he loved us enough to die for us. So we see happy, you should be happy. The poor in spirit should be happy because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, depression is a real thing. I understand that. But we as Christians have nothing but heaven to look forward to. Do you recognize that? Rob always had this saying, this is the worst it'll ever be. And that's such a good saying. Because there are days when life really stinks. We're like, man, Satan just keeps throwing one rock after another, and I don't know how much more I can take. But you realize that, hey, watch out because heaven's coming. See, yesterday we buried Bill Harden, a good man. Alice is one of my favorite people in the whole world. She has been since I was five years old in her kindergarten class. But I know this, that there is hope because we're going to see Bill again one day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the destitute, the impoverished in spirit. This is not physical poverty. This is not being, being broke. It's being broken in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second beatitude Jesus delves into is this idea of mourning. This word mourning carries two ideas. The first, mourning for our own spiritual condition. Recognize that we, if if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sin should make us sad. Do you recognize that? I remember when, I'll pick on my sister for a bit because it's funny. She's in Alabama. So it's bad. And she's probably watching this on my live stream, but it'll be okay. I remember when Karis would get in trouble when she was little, 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 like not like 14, when she was like 13 or something like that. But when Karis was really little, she would get in trouble. And my sister was so defiant. I saw mom spank her. We did that. Mom spanked her one time. I remember Karis looked back at her and just snubbed her nose. I want you to know, she's a pretty level-headed woman. That was not good. That's what a lot of Christians do to God on a daily basis. God, you're punishing me for my sin. God, I'm doing this. I'm rebelling. I'm going against you. But you know what? I don't care. How many of us have done that in our lives? Recognize this. I get we all sin. We all have those things we have. We all have those faults in our life. I understand that. We all say, hey, don't judge me. Because you sin too. Recognize this. I'm not on the judgment seat to pass judgment. Someone far holier than me is looking down. You see, our our journey through holiness 
needs to have the motivation not of people's opinion of us, but of God's opinion of us. So we see blessed are they that mourn that carries two ideas. The first is mourning for our own spiritual condition. We're, due, we're broken due to our innate sinful desire. The second idea is that of mourning for the spiritual condition of others. I call this soul consciousness. You guys have ever heard that term. We've heard that term a lot. Being soul conscious. You know what that means? It means you go to Walmart and you recognize there's a lot of people here that don't know Jesus as their Savior. It's looking at every opportunity to talk to someone, being broken for the fact that maybe someone's never told them about Jesus Christ. We need to always have that. Blessed are the they that mourn. We see why. For they shall be comforted. You see, you, happy are the people that mourn because they will be comforted. Even though we are sad for our condition and the condition of others, Jesus provides comfort for us. We no longer need to be upset or downtrodden about what we've done. Instead, we are comforted knowing that Jesus paid the price for us. We do this a lot in counseling. We'll have people come in and say, hey, I just got saved a month ago, but... Man, I've got a lot of guilt from my past. I, man, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, whatever it is. They say, I just have all of these things that I did. And man, I know God saved me, but I still have all this guilt. That's let it go. See, when Jesus died on the cross for us, he took away that shame. Despising the shame, the Bible says. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek, again, has this has two meanings as well. but And they're a little bit separate, but they're connected, so bear with me. The first carries the idea of being humble. Pride will always be an enemy of God. And he makes a statement that happiness comes from being humble. Our world says the complete opposite. Our world has nothing to do with humility. Our world wants us to act like the best and to be the best in your role and to make sure people know you're the best. God says, grab the bottom rung of the ladder and let me do it all. God expects us to be humble. Remember, this sermon is countercultural to the Israelites' time. So this is a reference to the pride that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have had concerning their spirituality. Pharisees and Sadducees were known to pray publicly and have these big, long, ornate prayers that they would do in front of everyone to showcase that they are more spiritual than others. So Jesus, com Jesus is competing with that. Blessed are the meek. You see, the second meaning is this. It's having strength under control. Fulfillment doesn't come from throwing our strength around but being compassionate enough to others. Humble to Jesus' teaching. And now we have our strength under control. Here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus was meek. Do you recognize that Jesus could have reshaped reality at the time when he was on, on the earth? He said, you know what, the Roman government, they're gone. They don't exist. The most powerful empire in history at that point, they're gone. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're thrown down. He could have set up a brand new throne with a spoken word. But he had strength under control because he knew what God's plan was. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says that whoever can do this, can humbly submit to him and his teachings, will receive a greater reward than the proud and the turbulent. You see, when we decide to let God have control and, and, surrender, and we surrender our control over to him, we surrender the stress and the pressure that comes from it, we allow God to lead, we give up our control, you'll then experience happiness and know he has something much better for you. You're looking to make a big decision right now. This is always a big thing. Big decisions coming into your life, whether it's a family, a person, whatever it is. Do the next right thing. Surrender the end of it to God, but do the next right thing. Don't focus on what's going to happen five, six, ten years from now. Focus on what you're going to do today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit of the earth. Verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We've already seen some internal emotions or principles and actions that bring about happiness, but now we see Jesus telling us some external actions that we now have to take to, for happiness. He says here that happiness comes from having a passionate desire to know what God wants you to do. The tense for this beatitude, that tense for blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, is an active tense, meaning it's something that is constantly happening. I have a question. How many of you guys loved school? Growing up, how many of you guys loved, like, back to school shopping, starting school? How many of you guys really enjoyed, like, the first two weeks of the semester? Like, going... My mom never, oh, I shouldn't say never. My mom rarely took us shopping just for fun. Like, we'd go into Walmart, and I feel like she'd walk by the toy aisle just to tell us no, just to assert dominance, you know? Just like, I'm still the boss. But back to school shopping, that woman was nuts. I mean, there was no budget. It was, you want this, you want this. These notebooks are cool. These erasers are awesome. It was great. I remember the first two weeks, even when I was in college. College was even better, I feel like. Because college, you're going back, you're seeing friends, you're getting back into a good routine, you're back to your job, it's awesome. But the first, like, two to three weeks are awesome, right? And after that, it hits. The mundane. The boring, the homework. The <laughs> you're excited about this teacher and realize, man, this person could peel paint with how boring they are. And you get to that point, well, how many of us have ever treated our pursuit for Jesus like that? We see someone get saved. We see someone come in and say, man, I'm growing. I'm, I'm building up a relationship with Jesus. I can't get enough of this. And then two, three, four months later, they're like, well, you know, I don't have time to read anymore. I don't have time to go to church anymore. See, Jesus wants us to always be excited to learn from him and his word. And we need to be passionately that word hunger has the idea of passionate, desperate, achingly searching for his righteousness. 
It means there's something inside of you that the only way it's going to be satisfied is God's righteousness in your life. That's where we get happiness is constantly searching after God. This comes from learning and growing in his word. The person not reading the Bible is the Christian that is not growing. I will stand by that. I have talked with a lot of people and they, I say, how's your relationship with God? Well, I pray a lot. Well, you are having a one-sided conversation with God. Because neglecting his word is neglecting what God is saying. Now, I'm not trying to like diminish the power of prayer by any means. But if our relationship with God is like a conversation, prayer is our way to converse with God. The Bible is his way to converse with us. It's not a healthy relationship if only one of you guys is talking. Let's just put it that way. We need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, you can, attur- you can attend church occasionally. You can listen to preaching. You may even open your Bible in the sermon. But if you're not personally searching the scriptures for what God has for you, you will not grow. Mom always had this thing about being on, learning by osmosis. Like you can't put a book underneath your pillow and expect you to absorb all the information. Some of you guys ever heard that? Is it just my mom? I don't know. I tried. It didn't work. Algebra 2, that was rough. We are to be constantly hungry and thirsty for what God has for us. And look what it says. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Verse 7. There's that promise. You will be filled. Not may be filled. You will be filled. But verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. This means to be actively passionate or compassionate to others. It means that your mercy is evident to people. It isn't hidden or spoken in secret. It's a public thing. This is something that, frankly, I have to work on. We're confronted at, on, a, on a daily basis with issues, anything from finances to marriage to discipline of their kids to selfishness. And it's easy to get distracted and hard to the problems of others. It's easy for us, as we often hear it, is, is to not have mercy anymore. And I'm grateful that Jesus was never that way. Think of the woman in the Gospels who had the issue of blood. Jesus was pressed upon, crowded around. It was probably a claustrophobic situation. And he, he's being pushed around by these people. And then this woman decides, hey, I'm going to sneak up. I'm just going to touch Jesus' cloak because I know that will heal me. And she did that. Now, Jesus, he's busy. He could have done something. He was on his way to see someone. But he stopped. And he showed mercy to someone who necessarily didn't deserve it. That's who we need to be. Blessed are the merciful. And we see the promise. For they shall obtain mercy. Hey, happy are the merciful because they have obtained mercy. We've obtained mercy. Our motivation to show mercy is not because Jesus is watching. It's because Jesus showed us mercy. We have a responsibility based off that action to show mercy to other people. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. That word pure means unmixed or without hypocrisy. Happiness comes from an unmixed or an unclean. It it doesn't come from an unmixed or an unclean. from a mixed or unclean heart, it comes from someone without hypocrisy. 
So many Christians are vocal about their beliefs and but they're are vocal about their beliefs in public, but their private lives do not, not ma- match up with their public profession. What we do in private is who we actually are. What we do in private is who we actually are. How many of you are grateful that a lot of people here don't know who you are in public or in private? Don't raise your hand. Raise your hand if you want, if you're feeling really like let us through. Frankly, I'm grateful. We all have those bad habits. We have things that we'd rather people never know about us, and that's fine. But the pure in heart means that we are unmixed. We are without hypocrisy. Happy do, happiness doesn't come on from putting on a face for your pastor or your church and then going home and living like the devil. The Holy Spirit does not strictly reside in the church pew. He resides in your car, your office, your home. Anywhere you are, the Holy Spirit resides. Jesus says here that those that are without hypocrisy, those that are genuine, will find happiness because for they shall see God. We hinder our relationship with God when we decide to become hypocrites. And I say this as I feel like somewhat of an expert. I'm a pastor's kid, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pretty good at faking it. I'm not going to lie. I think, aren't we, Laura? Not saying that we're, we're hypocrites, but we're pretty good at putting on a good show. And I remember as a kid, we'd put on a pretty good show. Like, I need to be the spiritual kid in church. People expect me to be a good kid. I need to put on that facade. But you see, when you are genuinely open and genuinely pure, you can actually see what God will do for you. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That word peacemakers has a really interesting Greek definition. You ready for it? It means makers of peace. Novel thought, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is saying here that happiness comes from making or searching out peace. When we strive to make amends, it's a constant action that we have to take. You see, it's an action we need to take. Pastor West mentioned this last week. Jesus Christ, when he died, reconciled us to him, and in doing so, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You understand that the Bible never allows you to say this, I will forgive them when they come and apologize to me. The Bible never gives you that permission. Or when you're ready to make amends to me for what you did, you know where to find me. Never gives you that permission either. You know what it does tell you? It says, go to your brother who's wronged you. That you may restore that brother. You see why? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. You see, when we accepted Christ as our Savior, we inherited the kingdom of God. Jesus restored us and gave us an an inheritance that we didn't deserve. He did it knowing we wronged him and knowing that some people will not be reconciled to him, and yet he did it anyway. You see, we need to make peace with people around us because we've seen Jesus make peace with us already. 
He restored us and gave us the title of children of God after he restored us. Get that relationship right that you're struggling with. Go to that relative or coworker that wronged you. Take action and make amends. Blessed are the peacemakers. You'll experience happiness when you make that peace. Verse, verse 10. Last one of these beatitudes. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think this is the hardest of the Beatitudes. You see, we can have happiness when we're being abused, afflicted, attacked for doing the right thing. How contrary is that to human nature? How many of you, when you get attacked, you're like, okay, let's fight, let's do it, ready to go. That's not what the Bible says. Hey, you're going to get happiness when you're persecuted. We're to be happy because people don't like us. Why? It answers that question. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We can be happy when people are persecuting us for doing the right thing, for what we believe, because we know what's coming for us. It's interesting that the first and the probably the easiest beatitude, being poor in spirit, recognizing that you are nothing without God, and the hardest, being persecuted for God, have the same reward attached to the end. For theirs is the kingdom of God. You know why? Because that's the end goal for every Christian. The end goal for me is not to have a church of 1,200. The end goal for me is not to preach a compelling sermon. The goal for me right now is to serve Jesus every day of my life because one day I'm going to get to live in eternity with him because of what he did for me. There's a caveat here. It says those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I'll be honest with you. A lot of times we come into these worlds and we, we see problems going on in our life and we say, hey, man, that's a persecution coming against me. Make sure you do not attribute a Attribute your failures and sins as persecution. What do you mean by that? If something wrong is going on in your life, examine it. And make sure you're not the cause of it before you decide, man, that's a persecution. Because it said, for righteousness sake. You're doing everything you can to please God. And you are, you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And people are ridiculing, it, ridiculing you for it. That's persecution. Make sure your heart is clean before you decide to say, hey, this is all persecution because it might be God's trials trying to get you back on track. So we see the place, we see the principles, and lastly, in the last few verses, we'll be really quick, are the promise. Here's the promise. Blessed are ye. He switches it up. He, he references strictly to the disciples right now. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, when they insult you or verbally abuse you, when they persecute you. This is that physical attack. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. They're liars. They're hostile. They're, they have hatred towards you. And he tells them this. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. I have dad's Bible. 
his dad has a lot of notes in here. It's kind of like put together your cheat code to a test. It's awesome. Dad has written here, has underlined in parentheses, it's an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command for us to rejoice and be exceeding glad. Jesus tells the disciples to be happy when you are reviled and persecuted, when you are insulted, verbally abused, ridiculed. Jesus promises that if you do what he told you to do, that there will be hostility and hatred from the world. My question is, why do we expect the world to behave in a way contrary to what Jesus said they would do? This is the, this is the generational difference. This is interesting. A lot of you guys who grew up in where the U.S. was a lot godlier country. I'm not going to use the O word. We don't use that word around here. A lot of the more aged people in here recognize that there was a time when the Bible was taught in schools and where God was held up in, in the government. I don't know that. Do you recognize that? I was born in 1997. The first president I remember is George Bush. And before I was born, the Bible was not allowed in schools, and really politicians didn't care about the Bible at all. And so I grow up, and I hear people say, man, this country's not what it used to be. And I look at it this way. The country's exactly where an unsaved world should be. Do you recognize that? Understand it's hard. It's difficult to comprehend. But we should not be amazed that the unsaved world acts unsaved. And that's what he says here. Blessed are you when they persecute revile, lie about you. Then he commands rejoice and be exceeding glad. We should never let that get us down. And why would Jesus command the disciples to do this? Well, he finishes off there in verse 12. For great is your reward in heaven. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Look, we don't need to be worried about what the world thinks about us. You're, you're not attending a church that is going to be seeker sensitive is what we call it. We're not going to change to make sure the world likes us better. We're, we know our pastor better than that. We don't care what the world talks, tells, thinks about us. What we care about is doing what Jesus Christ has told us to do. We have to live with this idea that, hey, I'm going to be happy when persecutions come because great is the reward in heaven. Question to close real quick. What beatitude are you struggling with? I feel like there's some of these that you say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm good on that one, but I'm struggling with that one. See, happiness comes from listening and surrendering to this countercultural kingdom that Jesus teaches about. That's your challenge this week is to read this through again and say, God, show me what needs to be built up. Show me what needs to be stronger. Give me the happiness that only you can give. And you know what we'll get? We'll get an answer. Be ready because God's going to show you where happiness truly comes from. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We love you, Lord.
Thank you for bringing us out tonight. I pray that you provide for everyone tonight. Give them a safe trip home. God, thank you for this kingdom. I pray as we learn to live like you would have us to live, that we can see your grace and your love through it all. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.